Well, good morning, y'all. It's good to be with you. I'm going to lower this a little bit so I can see I'm not quite this tall. Oh, never mind. I won't lower it. Uh, it's going to stay right there. Uh, my name is Beck Oderson. It's good to be with you. I am on staff at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, we're in Columbia, South Carolina. That's my normal shtick when I'm out of Columbia, but y'all know exactly where we are. Oh, great. Thank you. That's, that's perfect. Thanks. Uh, I'm on staff at First Pres Columbia. Uh, I recently finished seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary. Uh, my wife and I will be moving uh, in just a few weeks up to Pennsylvania to uh, go on to the next thing that the Lord has in store for us. Uh, but it's always a treat to be uh, preaching somewhere. Uh, it's always a, a, a special treat to be somewhere in Columbia uh, with, with people you know, people in the same church family, denomination. Uh, and it's always especially exciting to be a church plant. Uh, there's always something... Uh, a different kind of energy at a young church. In uh, Mark 4, Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Uh, and, he, and he says that it starts small, but uh, the ends of the kingdom are always out of proportion with its beginnings. Uh, and there's a special way that the power of the kingdom, I think, is manifest in a church plant. Uh, that who would ever have thought that in Irmo, South Carolina, uh, in Ben Lippin Chapel, the Lord would be building his eternal kingdom uh, that one day he will come uh, and take us home and rule everything. Uh, and he's starting that right here. Uh, so thank you for letting me be here. Uh, thank you for uh, your ministry and encouragement of uh, being a church plant in our city and reaching out to this community in Irmo. Uh, your work is uh, very valuable, um, and we're thankful for it uh, downtown. Well, today we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want us to consider really one question today as we think about Ephesians 2. I want you to consider who you are. Who you are. It's one of the most fundamental questions of life. It's a question that we are constantly asking and seeking an answer for in every stage of our life. And it starts very young. And when we're in elementary, middle, or high school, we try on a bunch of different hats to see where we fit in. When you move away from home for the first time, whether it's to college or to a job or, or to whatever, often the biggest question on your mind, even if you don't articulate it this way, is, is who I am. Now that I've left everything I know, now that my life is completely different, who am I? Uh, or then when you leave college, you get your first job, you make a big move, any major life change, at some point you're forced to consider who you are, what makes you you. I imagine something in your life this morning, whether you realize it or not, is forcing you to consider who you are. Uh, it could be any major life change, any major event at work, family, school, church. It can be the death of a loved one. It can be a new job. It can, it can be anything. And the world is constantly putting pressure on us to mold our identity into the, into the identity of the world. Uh, the identity we'll see in the first few verses in just a minute. Uh, but Ephesians 2 wants us to know who we are in light of what God has done. Who we are in light of what God has done. Uh, a preacher in the Reformation, his name was John Calvin, uh, famously said that all true wisdom must begin with knowledge of ourselves and knowledge of God. 
And that's really what Ephesians 2 is all about. It's who we are in light of what God has done. Uh, In Ephesians 1, Paul starts off writing to his friends in Ephesus, and he starts off by describing God's big, comprehensive, glorious plan for all of human history. And then in the second half of Ephesians 1, he prays for his friends to know this plan, to know the hope of God's love in their lives. And then in Ephesians 2, he moves from that wide-angle shot. Uh, Ephesians 1 is almost like a picture of the earth from the International Space Station. And then Ephesians 2 is a zoomed-in view. Uh, It's how God's comprehensive plan for all of reality, for all of history, is manifested in our individual lives. And Ephesians 2, like I said, is going to tell us who we are in light of what God has done. In this paragraph today, uh, especially these 10 verses, are, are maybe the most beautiful summary of the gospel that's ever been written. Uh, in my opinion, at least, Ephesians is the most beautiful book of the New Testament. It's the most succinct, compact, beautiful summary of what it means to be a Christian. And this paragraph we're reading today has sent shockwaves around the world. The message you're going to hear today is the most urgent, most important, most serious, most ultimate message you will ever hear. And so as we approach this paragraph, we're on holy ground this morning. And so before I read, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Pray with me. Almighty God and most merciful Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to stumble around in the dark. Thank you that you've given us a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Father, your word is pure and valuable. It's true and it's sure. Father, we need your word more than we need bread. We need every word that comes from your mouth. I pray that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Help us to read, to mark, to learn and to inwardly digest what you have for us today. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1. Hear now the word of our God. And you were dead, and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Four good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in Him. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the living God will stand forever. 
Like I said, this passage is telling us who we are in light of what God has done. And so I want to look at this passage under three headings tonight, and it's actually nicely divided up in our bulletins. Uh, Verses 1 to 3 tell us who we were. Verses 4 to 9 tell us what God did. And then verse 10 tells us who we are now. Who we were, what God did, and who we are now. And so first, let's look at verses 1 to 3, and Paul explains who we were. In these verses, he's explaining what life looks like apart from Jesus Christ. He's giving a theological diagnosis of what all of us lived like before we knew Jesus, what everybody who lives without Jesus is really living like. And he says that all those who try or have tried to live without Jesus are dead in trespasses and sins, enslaved to the world, to Satan, and to ourselves, and that we stand condemned and declared guilty by God, dead, enslaved, and condemned. Paul isn't pulling any punches here in the first three verses. He starts off, and the very first thing he says about life without Christ is that we were dead. Uh, To be spiritually dead in the Bible means to be cut off from the source of life, to be separated from God, to be alienated from God, to not have a vital living relationship with God who is the one true source of life, one true source of meaning and value in this world. And Paul says that this spiritual death, this separation from God, was self-inflicted. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. In other words, trespasses is basically the idea of crossing a boundary line, and then sin is basically the idea of rebelling against God. And so what Paul is saying is that we cut ourselves off from the source of life. And before we knew Jesus, we cut ourselves off from God. You see, even if we don't realize it, the greatest problem that any human being could ever have is that they're cut off, alienated, and separated from God, their maker. You see, God made us in his image, uh, which is Bible talk, theology talk, that just means he created us to reflect his perfection and to live in perfect fellowship and relationship with him, to be his children, to be his creatures, to live under his authority and his rule, But we didn't like that idea. We didn't like the idea that somebody else was in charge of our story, that somebody else was on the throne, and that we were not on the throne of our lives. And so we rebelled against God. We asserted ourselves against God. And the essence of of sin really is just that. It's self-centeredness. Every sin we've ever committed is exerting ourselves against God or against another person. Uh, Sin is putting yourself on the throne of your life. And Paul says that without Jesus, that's really what we're all born like, putting ourselves on the throne. And it's important to see, I think, that this isn't uh, just some crazy picture that some fire and brimstone preacher from a previous century made up. Uh, This is an accurate depiction of any life without Jesus Christ. A lot goes on underneath the surfaces of our minds Uh, that sometimes we even manage to hide from ourselves and hide from others. Uh, When I was thinking about this this week and and the reality of this self-centeredness that infects us all, uh, even after we know Christ, 
I was thinking, how embarrassed would I be if there was a billboard on Gervais Street or out here on St. Andrews, uh, one of those digital ones, and it just typed out everything I was thinking as I was thinking it for the whole world to see. Uh, that, that would be horrendous, terribly embarrassing. Uh, Malcolm Mudridge was a journalist in the 20th century, and he once said that the depravity of man is both the most empirically verifiable reality and the most intellectually resisted fact. Uh, it's really the only doctrine that we can prove uh, like we prove gravity. Uh, we could turn on the news right now and we would probably see some brand new horror that they've uncovered in the Ukraine. Uh, even here in Colombia, relatively safe city in the south, uh, we lock our doors every night. Uh, we spend hundreds of millions of dollars in this country on defense, on law enforcement, on military every year. All because this is the basic reality of human life. We were dead in our sins. In other words, we cut ourselves off from God because we wanted to be on the throne. And if we're honest, this is what we all know is, is true about us. Naturally, apart from Jesus. It's how we're all born into the world. And Paul also says we were enslaved to the prince of the power of the air, to ourselves. These things that we put on the throne, when we put ourselves on the throne, whether it's a degree or a school you went to or a job you have or, or anything, really, whatever we put on the throne always just leaves us trapped. And we look to it for satisfaction and we look to it for freedom and it never delivers on either of those promises. It only leaves us looking for more. That was what life was like without Jesus. And sometimes it's good to reflect on what life was like before you knew Christ. Or if you're like me and you don't know a day when you didn't know the Lord Jesus, which is a wonderful thing to be able to say, it's still good to reflect on what life could be like without Jesus. Because there before the grace of God go I. Now, this should tear down any pride we have in ourselves. It should tear down any sort of self-made man conception that we have about who we are. And it should remind us that this thing we do on Sundays, this, this Jesus that we talk about sometimes only once a week, is not an optional accessory to our lives. Uh, this church thing is not a hobby. It's not an extra thing on the end of our lives. It is absolutely necessary. Because without Christ, we are cut off from the source of life itself. Uh, we're like an appliance that's been unplugged uh, and therefore not really useful for anything at all. Or, or a water pipe uh, that's burst and can't get any water into your house. Without Jesus, we were dead in sins. We were enslaved to the world and to ourselves and we were condemned rightly by God. But thankfully, uh, that's not the end of the story, if you're a Christian. Uh, Paul goes on in verses 4 to 9 to tell us what God did. What God did. It's, it's almost like uh, Psalm 121. Psalm 121 starts off, and the psalmist is in a deep valley, and he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? Uh, it's the image of a shepherd walking through a deep valley, uh, and, and deep valleys would be very dangerous for shepherds and for sheep. That's where uh, animals like lions and bears would hide. Uh, and so you, you look up to the hills and you think, how do I get out? Where does my help come from? And just like the psalm, Paul says, our help comes from the Lord. 
Uh, Paul starts off this section with the words, but God. And one preacher, uh, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones, said that these two words, in a sense, contain the entire gospel. But God. What God did was that he saved us. He saved us. He sent his son to save us. He sent his son to live for us, to die for us, and he saved us. And Paul wants us to see three things about what God did in this little section. He wants us to see the method of how God saved us, the means for how God saves us, and then the motivation for why God saves us. Uh, Notice how many times in these verses Paul says, with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with him, which is with Christ. He seated us with him, with Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. All of this work of God's salvation, the how of God's salvation, the method that God used to save his people was to send his son, who was born as a man about 2,000 years ago in a desolate, tiny village. Uh, And Jesus, this, this man, this son of God, both God and man, lived a perfect life. He always walked in love. He never walked in trespasses and sins. He always walked in obedience with his father. He never rebelled. He never transgressed God's boundary. He lived a perfect life. And then he was sent to the cross. And he was executed. And in a sense, on the cross, the son of God became a son of wrath. So that children of wrath like us could become children of God. And he was raised, really raised, in his body. He stopped being dead and he walked out of the tomb And then he ascended into heaven and he sat down on his throne exactly where he's supposed to be. And he's controlling everything just as he always has been. Paul is saying that the method of our salvation was to send a man to preach his love, to die for his people, and then to rise again from the dead. And the way that that affects our lives, the way that that is applied to us is by faith. The means of salvation is faith. Uh, Faith says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Faith is turning away from ourselves, the the self that enslaves us, that tells us that we need to be on the throne, that if we're not in charge of our lives, then it's not really going to be real life at all. Faith is turning away from that and receiving the gift that God gives us in Jesus Christ. Uh, John Calvin said that faith brings a man empty to God so that he can be filled up with the blessing of God. Of Jesus. Faith in Jesus Christ is, according to our catechism, a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. We receive him, we rest upon him, we don't do anything, we look away from ourselves. Faith is an instrument, it's like the water pipe that brings water in. It, it's not actually anything that we do, it, it's receiving Jesus Christ. It's the instrument or the means of our salvation. Uh, Faith says, like the song from Sovereign Grace, if you're familiar, no list of sins I have not done, no list of virtues I pursue, no list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful song, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. My righteousness is Jesus' life, my debt was paid by Jesus' death, My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. 
faith. If, if we look away from ourselves, if we receive Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel, then God connects our life to Jesus' life. He unites us to Christ. Paul says so many times in these verses, like we noticed, with Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is that by faith, Jesus' story becomes our story. That what's true of Jesus, by faith, becomes true of us. So that when the Father looks at you, he no longer sees a child of wrath, but he sees his son, his only begotten child whom he loves. By faith, Jesus' story becomes our story. But that's not all that Paul says. He also wants us to know why God did this, the motivation for him doing this. And we see it in almost every verse. He did it because he was rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, because of his grace, because he wanted to display his glory. In other words, he did it because of who he is, because of who he is. It's interesting that in these verses, the only thing Paul says about us is that we were dead. In other words, there's nothing in us that evoked God's love for us. And that's really important to know because if there was anything in us that could evoke God's love for us, then it only makes sense that something in us could revoke God's love for us. But that's not what Paul says at all. He says, who you are, if what's true of Jesus is true of you, the only reason what's true of Jesus is true of you is because God loves you. And he loves you because he loves you. And he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. I love in verse 4 when Paul says, God loved us with great love, the great love with which he loved us. He loved us with love. It's just kind of silly, like what else can you love somebody with? Like you can't love somebody with anything other than love. But Paul is just hammering home that the motivation for what God did was because of who he is, because of his love, because of nothing else. And this is really important to know that what's true of Jesus is true of us because so often in our lives, events, whether they be job changes or school changes or a loss of a loved one or any kind of major life event, those so often begin to define our story. And Paul is saying that 2,000 years ago, on a hill outside of Jerusalem, seismic events occurred that will totally rewrite your story, that totally change who you are, that are more impactful for your identity and for your story than anything that has ever occurred in your life, will ever occur in your life, or could ever occur in your life. If by faith you look outside of yourself for hope and for meaning and for life, then what's true of Jesus will be true of you, and his story can be your story. That's what God did. And that brings us finally to the third heading, verse 10, who we are now. Paul says that we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, his new creation created in Christ Jesus. He's telling us that if we are united to Jesus Christ by faith, we are new people with a new purpose. That the things that used to define you no longer define you. Uh, It's interesting, he says that he created us to walk in good works, where in verses 1 and 2, he, he said, we used to walk in trespasses and sins. So, if you've been raised with Christ, you no longer walk 
according to yourself or according to the world, but you walk according to God and according to life. You're on a new road. You're on a new path, a pathway that leads to life and to blessing and to God. You're a new person. It reminds me of uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 where Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. If you're a Christian, there's something new in your life that did not exist before. God has not just changed you and made you different, but he's made you completely new. Your heart is completely new. There's something in you that was not there before. There's new life. There's hope. There's a new purpose. Something has happened if you're a Christian and God has created something brand new in your life. You're a brand new person. You have a totally new identity because a new story defines your story. Your story has been erased and Jesus' story has been written in its place. And you have a new purpose. Paul says that we were created for good works. Uh, It's interesting that so often before Jesus, we, we try to do good things and, and we try to earn degrees or earn money or earn social status or get a membership somewhere or buy this new car or this new piece of clothing or whatever it is in order to, to bring us meaning, to bring us hope, to bring us life. But Paul says the real order when you've been made new by Jesus is totally reversed that the things you do are no longer in order to bring yourself satisfaction in life, but the things you do flow out of this new life you have. Uh, The order of the gospel is never do this and then live. It's always live and then do this. This new identity we have in Christ reorients our whole approach to life. It reorients the way we do everything. We now live out of who God is for us in Christ. We no longer have to live out of ourselves. And if you remember your life before Jesus, or if you know somebody who lives without Jesus, then, then you know that trying to live out of who you are, trying to give yourself, trying to live out of your own strength or whatever it is, never really works. If we're going to draw from a well, it has to be one that's not dry and dead. It has to be the spring of life. It has to be the well of God's love for us. Paul says, if you've been raised with Christ, you are a new person because of what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. Paul is really eager for us to know who we are in light of what God has done. And this is really important, I think, for a few reasons. Uh, It's interesting to me that Paul would write this to Christians Ephesians is written to a church, so presumably the people who were hearing this were already Christians, and he's telling us the gospel, which is like Christianity 101, right? That's like normally the first thing you learn when you become a Christian, so why is Paul telling us the gospel, like Christianity 101? And I think for a couple reasons. One reason is because the gospel is always important, because we need the gospel every day, Uh, because the Christian life is not like math class, where you Uh, You know, you master addition and then you move on to multiplication. Or you master quadratic equations so you move on to like cubic equations or whatever. You always, always, always need the same gospel every day. You never graduate from the gospel in the Christian life. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. 
But I think also as I've thought about this passage in the book of Ephesians, there might be another reason too why Paul is writing this to his friends in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesians was not a fun place to be a Christian. Uh, Acts 19 tells the story of Paul's first visit to Ephesus, and they started a riot, and they tried to kill him. And they eventually ran him off. Uh, Ephesians was home to the temple of Artemis, one of the Greek and Roman goddesses. It was, a, it was a pagan city. It was the center of Roman life and culture. Uh, it was completely opposed to Christianity. And after Paul left, Timothy came, and then the Apostle John came. And eventually, uh, Ephesus is where the Apostle John was exiled from. Uh, he was pastoring in Ephesus, and they, the um, government kicked him out for, for preaching Jesus. It was not an easy thing to be a Christian in Ephesus. And so I wonder if Paul knew what the Ephesians were going to face in the coming years. Uh, when John, the, the last New Testament pastor of Ephesus, wrote Revelation, in Revelation 2, he gives a message to the church in Ephesus from Jesus. And he has a lot to commend them for, but in Revelations 2, John says, This I have against you. You abandoned the love you had at first. You abandoned the love you had at first. I wonder how hard it was in Ephesus to be a Christian, and I wonder how easy it would be to live in the Roman culture and to abandon the love we had at first for the gospel. And I wonder if Paul as a pastor knew what his friends would be tempted with, and he wanted them to have a bedrock. He, he wanted them to have a reminder, a document, a book, a letter that would remind them about the love that God showed them so that when they needed to remember their first love, they had something to put their feet on. I think one of the purposes in Ephesians 2 one of the reasons Paul wrote this to his friends is because when the bottom gives out in our lives, if the gospel is not there to stand on, then there, there really will be no place for our feet to land and we really will just fall. I think this is illustrated really well by uh, a man who clearly knew who he was. Uh, Horatio Spafford lived in the 1800s. He wrote the wonderful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, but in the years before he wrote it, uh, he lived in Chicago, and he lost his business in the Chicago fire. He lost a son to sickness. Uh, and then when all of his life was falling apart, he was going to move his family overseas to look for new work. And so he sent his wife and his daughters on a boat overseas, and on their way, the boat crashed. And the boat sank, and his daughters perished in the ocean. Uh, and his wife sent him a now famous telegram when she got to Britain, and all it said was, Saved alone. And so as Horatio was on the boat going across the seas to meet his wife <coughs> after the death of his daughters, he penned the hymn, It is well with my soul. It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, though sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I think Paul wants us to remember this gospel. He wants us to know who we are in light of what God has done. Because if you know who you are, then whether in a river of peace or a sea of sorrow, there's a solid rock you can put your feet on. And nothing, nothing can change your story. Because your story is Jesus' story. And he's the king.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much (coughs) for your word. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for telling us, (coughs) excuse me, who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. (coughs) Excuse me. In Jesus' name, amen.